More than once I travelled the length of California, that shipwreck of a landmass. A quivering, shimmering, tectonic plate laden with sierras and forests and deserts. Once upon a time the whole state was a wayward island that went crashing wildly into whatever earth was already there. It beached itself against Nevada and Arizona, in other words, belted into them headfirst at the highest possible speed. From the eye of the condor or aeroplane, it is a country of crests, folds, creases, knobs, lips, peaks, dimples, ripples and crevices. Some areas are furry with chaparral, while others seem to have been rubbed raw, sand yellow, the colour of ale or straw. And of course, in the north, there are huge salubrious mansions of temperate forests, cathedrals of unhewn sequoia and pine. From above, it seems that it's out of these abysses of trees that the mountains are born, rising suddenly into a series of seres, white mountain summits drawn out of the perpetual dusk of the valleys, snow-capped pyramids that intrude improbably into the blue sky. Over and over in my mind I am returning to Los Angeles, re-entering it. No matter how many lanes there were on the highway, the traffic would begin to slow as you approached some aspect of the city. The first time I ever came to LA, I was a few days shy of turning 18. The bus I had taken had to navigate its way through bushfires which flared up in the forests adjacent to the road. A flashing orange sign announced that a child had been kidnapped in a Buick whose number plate was described and which I never forgot. I was being taken to Anaheim for my birthday. I wore a cheap Hawaiian shirt and a cheap straw cowboy hat. I was for the first time realising that my dreams had been infiltrated by California long before I ever actually went there. I have since seen the Salton Sea, Muir Woods, the Mothball Fleet, Watts Towers... La Brea Tar Pits, San Quentin Prison. I have followed the exact contour of the San Andreas Fault, taken a tour through the flat gold plateau of the centre, gone beyond the border to the dangling arm of the Baja Peninsula. I have come to realise that California is a country inspired by gold, infatuated with dreams, and initiated on the road. Yes, Californians know roads. Their lingo is a jargon of highway names, jumbled combinations of letters and numbers, which, to reach a destination, one has to sequence correctly. It is precisely the language of sorcerers, and so it should be. You get the idea that Californians invented a certain variety of travel. Such were the magic arts that drew me there several times over as a younger man. And although I have my doubts about ever going back to that busy and bewildering nation, I am quite sure that it will always have a stronghold on my memories and fantasies.
In a sense, it is from California that all my outbound journeys have taken place, even though I live nowhere near it. And despite the fact that the upbringing of a Tasmanian cannot be more dissimilar to that of a young Californian. Nevertheless, once, in a Volvo 240GL, the colour of tarmac, I got stuck in six lanes of immobile traffic, absolutely static. It's the closest I've ever been to a panic attack. I fidgeted in the passenger seat but still felt like I'd been stricken with sudden paralysis. I could go nowhere, but I told the driver I was getting out. Told her that I'd walk across the bonnets of the cars on either side, climb down off the overpass and from there walk to LAX and wait for the next flight anywhere. Or else run down Santa Monica Pier with arms outstretched and feathers like Icarus and I would take myself across the Pacific. Sit down, my friend said. We're nearly home. I turned my head and gave a tired smile. No, mate, I said. You're nearly home. I'm 10,000 kilometres away. I live in an old train carriage, a small and sufficiently cute space that serves most of my needs, even though it doesn't have electricity and I have to shower out of this kind of plastic bag contraption. I've been here nearly a year, which is a fair bit longer than most of my recent rental efforts. Normally my life has a different rhythm. I'm generally gone for at least a few months of each year, wandering without an address somewhere else in the world, crossing borders, passing between nations, taking trains that actually make the effort of motion, following tracks and roads and paths that offer up new scenes without ceasing, prompting and promoting the development of my ideas and my dreams. I'm glad to be here this year, though, At one point it actually looked like I might head to the Himalayas in mid-March. I'd marked the date on my calendar. The plan fell through and when it came to the day that I'd expected to fly out, I felt somewhat relieved. Although I admit to having had a very ignorant thought that there could have been something romantic about being stuck in India's northeast states for an indefinite period. Now looking at how things have panned out there, especially compared to here in Tasmania where the pandemic has been thus far relatively painless. 
I have fairly strong doubts about that initial instinct of mine. And it is an instinct. It's not so much that I think the grass is greener elsewhere, because after all my wanderings I still love Tasmania more than any other place. It's more to do with a curiosity about who else I could be if I were ever permanently expelled from my comfort zone. How I would eke out a life and an identity if I were exiled from my homeland and forced to contend with new circumstances, a new set of parameters. A while back I tried to trace the impulses that led me to live in a train carriage out in the sticks. Lots of things brought me out here, I guess. But one event stays in my mind. It was a few years ago. I went down to the city of Hobart with an idea to keep an eye out for a place to rent. But it was the beginning of a housing crisis. And the options were few and far between. And the whole process seemed to promise nothing but stress. One evening I was unsure where to rest my head. So I took myself up the mountain, Kunani Mount Wellington, and stomped off to one of the secret shacks there. That night I slept in the loft as big gusts blew through the tops of the snow peppermints. And then there was this gentle spread of silence. Just some soft scuffling on the tin sheeting of the roof, like the paws of possums or phantoms. Snow was falling. I curled up tighter in my sleeping bag and decided that I didn't need a home. I could live without a fixed address, each night finding a different place to rest my head. I packed up my old car with a few possessions, camping and cooking gear, a box of food and several boxes of books. And I roved the roads of my island. It'd be a couple of years before I had normal lodgings again. Eventually my vehicle fell apart, but by the time I finished that long season as a vagabond, the whole surface of Tasmania seemed like home. For a fair while now, I suppose I've been contemplating the two versions of the word roots. Do I focus on the kinds of roots that dig deep beneath the surface of the earth and fix me to where I am? Or do I follow the roots that lead off in great lengths all around the world and let me drift through all sorts of alternative ways of being? It strikes me yet that maybe this isn't the way to look at it. After all, I come from a country that doesn't have a long history of sedentary farming. The first Tasmanians lived in a seasonal pattern, cultivating a rhythm of departure and return, becoming intimate with multiple ecosystems throughout the island. Their relationship with the land was channelled through movement. I wonder what it was like for one of the old families to come over a rise on an autumn afternoon and catch sight of the sea for the first time in some months. To observe how the woodlands they'd burnt had slowly started to produce new greenery, taking studious note of ecological changes, sharing memories of the last hunt there, reminiscing on an occasional festival that had previously been held in the clearing beyond or how it felt to climb back onto the plateau as the weather warmed, chasing the big boomers over the moorland, 
watching the moon rise slowly through a gentle dusk at a campsite on an escarpment on the roof of the island. Each season the old people went back to their roots, in both senses of that word. The roots they moved upon were also the roots that connected them to their places. I'm not suggesting that my sequence of journeys is the equivalent of any traditional nomadic life, but there is something deeper in it than a search for simple adrenaline. I think of what the Spanish writer Cervantes wrote. The road is better than the inn. But actually, how wonderful is it to pull into a familiar pub at the end of a long trip? All the travels of the past years have been about cultivating something for which I do not yet have words. And rendered stationary this year, I'm grateful that I took my opportunities to see what exists in places far from this island at the bottom of the world. I was walking towards the headland when I heard them. Arctic terns, sharp and grey like daggers, swooping about above my head. It must have been breeding season. That slab of gabbro was covered in their shit. They were saying their nickname over and over, Pictani, Pictani. Another name for them might be summer birds. They travel up to 90,000 kilometres each year, journeys to and from the Earth's extremities, as if to make sure they never see a winter, as if addicted to sunshine. I have been accused of much the same. For a while I managed to string together multiple summers, going literally to great lengths to see the world in the maximum amount of light. Actually, it wasn't intentional. I certainly didn't mean to evade winter. But sometimes I had friends smirk when I said I was about to make another long journey away just as the cooler season hit, and heard them say, as if a slur, words like, summer bird. I'd been branded with an unseen mark, the shadow of an arctic turn. But I think if you wanted to get to the heart of my habit of travel you'd have to understand what happened when I was 20 or so years old. When I started to comprehend how far my home was from the mainstream of life. 
there are only half a million of us living in Tasmania, and the human history of the place gives hints as to what we think and feel. It all began with a mob who were inadvertently isolated when the landmass they were on turned into an island. Much later came a population who were predominantly exiles. And nowadays those who choose to live here often tend to be eccentrics in the most literal sense of the word. People who have opted to avoid the global middle path and live instead on the margins. So there was something to be said about the need I had to see what else there was. When I was seven years old, I left Tasmania for the first time. I didn't go so far, only to the mainland. But just putting some distance between myself and my home was enough to open up opportunities and possibilities. So something existed in that ethereal space, it seemed. I came home and crouched on my hands and knees with an atlas spread in front of me. The world was a patchy quilt of pastel colours, with sacred words printed all over it. I read these place names out loud, like they were the names of saints. Duala, Omsk, Valparaiso. Even then I didn't see these as destinations. I perhaps envisioned them in the same way that we see the other planets in our solar system. It's good to have a science about their existence, but... One never suspects they'll actually ever go there. And even when I was given my first opportunity to go overseas, a school exchange on the other side of the Pacific, I was unsure and sought advice from elders needing to be convinced. What were the advantages of wandering off? What could be desirable about such a detour? Eventually sold on the matter, I strode the school grounds over there as if unnaturally lit. I don't merely mean that the consistency of the light on the American West Coast was different from what I was used to, although it was, and this in itself was a gift of the experience. But I felt like I was radiant myself. An Alaskan woman noticed it. She asked, Do you all have such shiny eyes over there? She'd intuited something. I had not only a different accent, but a different cadence, a different gait, a set of different values. Much later I nutted out what it was that made me stand out. I came from a place with a distinct culture, which was something I'd never have picked. Tasmanians notoriously cling to the myth that we have nothing of the sort. It took a good deal of distance to look back upon ourselves to help me work out what rot it was to behave as if our strange history and geography wouldn't result in culture. And indeed, in one of my favourite novels we can read an imaginary conversation between Kublai Khan and Marco Polo. The great Khan wonders aloud what on earth possesses someone to traverse so much of the known world. But Marco Polo is ready with a poised response. He says that elsewhere is a negative mirror in which a traveller, by seeing so many lives that they do not and can never have, 
is able to recognize the little that they do. Strung up above the double doors here in the train carriage, there is a trio of scallop shells. A decoration left by a previous tenant. An homage, I suppose, to the tradition of El Camino de Santiago, the pilgrim's path across southwestern Europe. These shells clink lightly like horses' hooves on the slopes of a mineral mountain. Sometimes I watch the shells and seem to hear the noise even when they aren't touching. As if it's an echo from a previous time. A journey made by someone who is not me. A pilgrimage is a deliberate disruption, an uprooting. Whether it's to Mecca, or Machu Picchu, or the MCG... Ritual journeys give us a chance to frame the events of our lives in some sort of different way. I reckon trips like these are the perfect structure for storytelling. In fact, it often strikes me that so many of the old stories, and plenty of new ones, are based around journeys. Abraham and Gilgamesh both left their homes. Noah and his wife went on an enforced voyage by sea. The heroes of the Icelandic sagas were widely travelled. And Don Quixote wandered and wandered and wandered. It's little wonder many of us feel an impulse to rove off, roam, explore, and come back telling tales of our travels. Years ago I met a man at the beginning of a strange pilgrimage, a literary one at that. We'd met outside the Iolkos Tennis Club in the Greek city of Volos. I was waiting for that afternoon's train towards Mount Olympus. He was going to the country of Georgia, he said, following a classical route, that of Jason and the Argonauts. It was a journey I myself had always wanted to do, into and across the Black Sea, just like those ancient sailors who on their sacred vessel, made of oak from the slopes of Mount Pelion, went in search of the Golden Fleece. But this bloke said he was going to swim it. Which was no small undertaking, really. Must be like... 2,000 kilometres of swimming? Up through the Bosphorus Sea and along Turkey's north shore towards the ancient kingdom of Colchis, where the ancient people used to collect alluvial gold from streams with woolen nets, like big cosy blankets to catch a fortune. It was three years later on a completely different trip 
that I myself wound up there, in old Colchis, sitting at a wine bar, wondering how that swimmer went, and half expecting him, really, to walk through the door. For each journey contains within it a multitude of other journeys. Captain Jason certainly found that out. It was like each member of his crew, even Hercules, had their own personal undertakings happening within them, adventures in miniature. The Argo was packed to the gunnels with stories and possibilities and dreams, bearing as ballast so many past events, on an itinerary of various intentions which would propel the voyage forth as much as any westerly, each of their hopes like those breezes that blow from the Balkans and make the sails billow on the Black Sea. And their crew had the most splendid moment in which they crossed paths with a prolific traveller. On their way they encountered the god of the dawn, making his daily traverse of planet Earth. They say Jason and his crew were in search of gold, but I don't think that their greed was for something so simple, such a futile metal. Of course they were in search of something more. Jason did come back with a wife after all. A wife and a tragic story that had begun to unfold. I have sometimes thought that perhaps the gold sought by certain Argonauts is nothing more than the daily sunrise upon a new horizon, flecks of which can only be caught in glimpses and never held or stored away. Light that reveals visions of lands not yet seen ways of living that could be brought back to their home harbour beneath the mountains, tales to tell in the taverna by the port. My own journeys have rarely had a specific purpose. Once I went to see a plaque that commemorated where the great German poet Goethe vomited. (laughs) Another time I walked 500 kilometres along a route upon which my favourite historical character rode his horse but in truth I have mostly been looking for less material things. Surprises and sunrises. New ways of seeing things. She had been in the corner of the apartment with a large map unfolded in front of her. It had covered her entirely, as if the country was her shroud. Like geography could be a disguise. Her lover had been in the room with her. He'd said, You know, you don't have to leave. 
I recognised her in the bus station. Recognised her as a similar species to me. Wrinkles forming on her forehead before my eyes. Lines like river systems rushing down from the ragged crest of her mind. Speckled eyes that wore flecks of darkness in them. Eyes which were too fast, that darted left and right, and then went to the horizon as if drawn to it by a sort of gravity. Worn boots on her feet, made for touching dirt and asphalt. And she was tapping those treadless rubber soles as if she was always ready to go. I nodded and murmured the word, Pictani, and her ears pricked up. She responded with a rhetorical question, said, Summer bird? And I smiled. That bus station seemed to have every imaginable destination handwritten on posters that were hanging from the walls. You could go in any direction. You could head to the desert or the forest or you could visit an old friend or go towards the glaciers or the stars. This other traveller and I laid out maps on the tiled floors and traded stories from our journals. The bus was late. The bus is always late. So we stretched out bedrolls and philosophised. She said, Movement is medicine. But I replied that it's not if what you're trying to get away from is something within yourself. Still I thought that she must have had an arctic turn tattooed on her arm in invisible ink. I'd been gone from home for a long while. In the lead up to my departure I'd been given an office in which I opened up those maps and learned other languages and wrote travellers' poems instead of doing the actual work I'd been assigned. Strangely given all that preparation... I still had no itinerary when I left. Just a one-way ticket and a mate who might pick me up from a far-off airport and share a rickshaw back to an apartment that would fall apart around us the first night I spent in it. Not that that was any loss to me. I had no need for a fixed address. That was why I'd left, having sold all my possessions and written farewell letters to close friends. For the rest of the time, I didn't have a safety net. Nothing plotted, not the next place, not the following night's bed, nor some narrative to which I was supposed to attend. I had nothing to resolve. I was learning everything as I went along. One night I slept beneath an avocado tree and had a dream in which I ended up at the limits of a city where the sign said, Welcome to Adam Wallsborg. In one of those gorgeous instances of dream logic, I woke up and knew that I was to head north, to a city I'd not meant to visit, a city whose name was not Adam Wallsborg or anything like it, but where I would meet a man who had once written to me out of the blue to practice his English, the cousin of someone I'd known several years before in a different part of that country. It was a long journey through a parched orange desert, 
and a lot of time to think about the tenuous connections. And throughout those ten hours I had my doubts about following this instinct, but when I got there, this bloke was just where he said he'd be. This impromptu student of mine. He guided me through the city until we took a seat in the park, and then he told me he was a poet. So I pulled out a notebook in which I'd scrawled a few verses, and we translated some of them for our spontaneous lesson trying to manage words like smudge and twist and aching. He looked up and said, What does it mean? Pointing to the title I'd scribbled on the cover of the notebook. What does it mean? Let the continents unfurl. Travel is about to become possible for Tasmanians again albeit on a smaller scale than usual. But I'm in no hurry to go anywhere. After all, the most mysterious land you're ever likely to enter is the one called here. It's like what I said to the traveller in the Adam Walsborg bus station. We'd discussed the side effects of all these jets we'd taken across great distances the contribution we make to the changing of the climate through our incessant moving about. Maybe if there wasn't a choice, we'd said. Maybe if we never had the chance to travel. We'd be okay with it. We wouldn't so much miss it. And though there are aspects of international exploration that I regret not having in my life this year, and there are people I miss and places I'd like to get back to, Mountains and museums I still would like to visit. I have been content exploring my own patch of country, trying to better understand the subtle shades of the culture and history of my own neck of the woods. Sitting in me train carriage. Going nowhere. But anyhow, the bus was on its way we would probably never see each other again. But we'd marked that unlikely place with an experience shared with a stranger. Which I guess is the purpose of travel. That's what you cover all those kilometres for, eh? So that these days, my maps are not blocked out with pastel shades between official borders. They're coloured far more intricately, artistically given detail by rendezvous such as these, encounters with wonder and sadness, and beauty and reverence and loss. I can look at any map and think back upon Pictanis I've met along the way, who then flew off to pluck another unlikely moment from the atmosphere. Summer birds dine on the most translucent of insects, the most fleeting and infinitesimal moments that make up a life. 